Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Ben, I'm, I'm feeling a little hungry. Oh yeah? Yeah. Do you want to go get some pie? Like, like dessert pie? Like pumpkin pie or apple pie? All pie? Or do you want something more filling? Like a, like a meat pie? Yeah, meat pie would be good. Yeah, with for sure. With some gravy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I heard of this really good pie shop down, uh, down, downtown. Was it, was it on Fleet Street, perhaps? What are we watching today, Ben? I think I, we just gave it away. We're watching, um, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street from 1936. I did think about opening this show with, like, a song. Would it be about, like, how shitty Calgary is? <laughs> I think for a lot of people, when they hear Sweeney Todd, um, depending on maybe what age they are, they're either going to think of the 1979 Stephen Soundheim musical, or they're going to think of the like 2007 Tim Burton movie based on that musical. Mm-hmm. But um, as evidenced by the fact that we are covering a Sweeney Todd movie over here in 1936, he's been around a lot longer than that. He's been around a lot longer than 1936, even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about where Mr. Todd comes from? Uh, well, Mr. Todd was born on Fleet Street, and I'm just kidding. He's not a real person. No, he's not a real person. No. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. A lot of people like to uh, make the case that he's at least based off someone real, and the case... No. No, he's not. Mm-hmm. He's all, all, all fake. Mm-hmm. His first appearance came in the Victorian era, and he first appeared in what's known as a penny dreadful periodical serial called The String of Pearls. What's, Sarah, what's a penny dreadful? I mean, you know, I can tell that it's something from the past because it involves pennies, but, <laughs> but what is it? Um, well, they're pretty pleasant to me. Oh, this is... this episode. <laughs> um, it's actually kind of funny how we haven't gone into much detail about Penny Dreadfuls up till now, because we've already kind of tangentially or briefly talked about Penny Dreadfuls and some of the characters from them. Kind of the most direct character would be Varney the Vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about stories coming out peri- in periodicals, one that... I don't think we've actually talked about on the show, but people would know, is Oliver Twist. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, Penny Dreadfuls were, like, bargain bin, bottom-of-the-barrel version of the kind of periodicals that, like, an Oliver Twist would be serialized in. Yeah, there's upper-class periodicals where Oliver Twist appeared in, and then you have all the way down the economic scale to Varney the Vampire, where each issue is only a penny, Hence the Penny Dreadful kind of pejorative name. Mm-hmm. They were very popular, and they covered everything from horror to adventure, and you could kind of see them as like a precursor to the pulp magazines in the 50s, or even comics. Mm-hmm. You'd find reprints of other stories, uh, like, kind of interestingly, um, the original gothic horror fiction 
the castle of Otranto. Oh, yeah. To other sensational uh, stories or topics and thrillers like what introduces Sweeney Todd, uh, the story The String of Pearls, colon, A Romance. That sounds like not Sweeney Todd. There's a romance. That's okay. You're right. That's true. Is the, he like? Is he like a minor character in the story or something? Is he he's like the villain in the story? Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and this particular penny dreadful, the string of pearls, was published between 1846 and 47. And and kind of like I mentioned before, and you might have picked up by the time we said the phrase penny dreadful, um, it's a pejorative term. Mm-hmm. These are sensationalized stories with. Horror, romance, gore, thrills, crime, as close to sex as you could get, and violence. Um, everything you don't think of with Victorian-era upper-class people. You can kind of look at Jekyll and Hyde as an example of, like, you know, you don't think of this kind of literature being around during that time. Well, yeah, I mean, the Victorian upper-class were not allowed to, you know be interesting in any way. So, of course, all the good stuff is uh, down here in the lower classes. Yeah. Now, The String of Pearls with Sweeney Todd has practically all of those aforementioned topics (laughs) um, because the goal of Penny Dreadfuls was to kind of get a gut reaction. So you'd go out and buy the next one. Sure. And given that they are usually written one entry at a time, the plots can get pretty wild. <laughs> um, you could all, like, so you know how Riverdale is crazy episode to episode? Yeah. That, think of, like, that only in, like, pulp magazine form. Right. So to give you an idea, here's the synopsis of The String of Pearls, a romance. <laughs> the year is 1785 in London. Industrialization is at its peak. And young sailor Lieutenant Thornhill is missing. He was on his way to give a gift of a pearl necklace to Joanna Oakley on behalf of her missing-at-sea lover, Mark Ingresty. Okay. On his way to see Joanna, Thornhill stops for a shave at this barber shop on Fleet Street, uh, Sweeney Todd's shop. So a friend of Thornhill's, Colonel Jeffrey, uh, realizes that Thornhill's missing uh, meets up with Joanna, and then they start a search for Thornhill. They're pretty sure something's up with Sweeney Todd's place, so Joanna decides to go undercover as a little as a boy assistant uh, at Sweeney Todd's. You know, he had an opening for an assistant because the last one had been institutionalized for raving about murder. We learn that on Fleet Street, um, there's also Mrs. Lovett's pie shop. And there's also a church called St. Dunstan's. And we learn how Sweeney Todd's shop connects with Mrs. Lovett's through old tunnels from this nearby church. Todd essentially would pull a lever uh, for the the person sitting in the chair. Um, The person would fall headfirst into the cellar, cracking their head or neck open. And then the body would be taken to Mrs. Lovett's place to be made into pies. Um, while discovering this, it turns out that Joanna's lost-at-sea lover, Mark, has actually been imprisoned in the cellar underneath Mrs. Lovitz's place, forced to cook people into pies. He escapes with Joanna, and it's actually kind of funny, he apparently pulls himself up 
the lift uh, where you deliver the pies and tells everyone like, hey, this might upset your appetites, but people are in these pies and everyone freaks out. Right. It's the end of Soylent Green. Yeah, exactly. Sweeney Todd eventually poisons Lovett and is apprehended and hanged himself. Joanna and Mark get married after such a harrowing experience. And there's the romance. Right. Wow, that's, that's so bizarre. Yeah, it's kind of like the craziest How I Met Your Mother episode ever. <laughs> well, it's, it's also just bizarre, like, if you're familiar with, you know, the plot of the musical or the, the Tim Burton movie, in that, like, there are character names that are the same, and there's, like, situations that are similar, but, like, the way everything ends up turning out is really weird and different. Yeah, yeah, I'll talk about, about those changes. <laughs> So people went hog-wild over this story. Like I said, it was published between 1846 and 47, and before the periodical was even finished, uh, there was a stage version, a stage adaptation in 1847. Oh, so they, like, Full Metal Alchemist it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, and it was billed as being founded on fact. <laughs> Blair um, Witch Project style. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so between this stage version and the popularity of the Penny Dreadful, um, the idea of a barber killing people and then having those people turn into pies at the nearby pie shop, that whole thing became a bit of an urban legend. And people are always like, no, he's Sweeney Todd's based off of a real person. But let me just reiterate that people researching this kind of stuff are like, no, Sweeney Todd does not exist. There's nothing, like, no criminal around this time that they would have taken as inspiration. This didn't actually happen. The periodical was collected in book form in 1850 with kind of as an expanded version. So, like, an author's cut. <laughs> okay. And there's been many, many adaptations. Um, so the book had that expanded plot. In 1865, there was yet another stage production and then kind of the next adaptation is a 1926 lost silent film. Mm. Then we have, you know, a couple film versions, including this one. There was apparently a CBC radio play in 1947. Nice. People have written songs about Sweeney Todd, uh, like one from 1956 called Sweeney Todd the Barber. And even <laughs> in 1959... Mm-hmm. There was a ballet version performed by the Royal Ballet in London. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a, uh, <laughs> like a step up from Penny Dreadful to Royal Ballet. Yeah. You know, that's... kind of ridiculous. Yeah, that's like urchin to king in a single bound, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's like a hundred years later. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, maybe not quite a single bound. <laughs> uh, now, like you were saying before, um, if you've seen the 2007 Tim Burton musical film, you'll notice that the original plot and that film's plot are very different. Mm -hmm. um, the plot differences that came to mind, um, because before researching this, my only experience with Sweeney Todd was the Tim Burton film, is um, Judge Turpin, played by Alan Rickman. He's not in the original story mm -hmm. at all. And there's a few, few other differences, like the musical fact. Sure. So... Well, and, and Joanna's his daughter. Yeah, yeah, and, like, Sweeney Todd is actually, like, 
named Benjamin Barker. Yeah, he's out for revenge. Yeah, because he's been, like, done wrong and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So all those plot lines or changes actually comes from the 1973 stage adaptation by Christopher Bond. Nice. That's the version that the 1979 musical adapts. Okay. Uh, Fun fact, the 1979 musical is called a, a musical thriller. Nice. And so that 1979 adaptation um, features Canadian actor Len Carew as Sweeney Todd Mm -hmm. and motherfucking Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Lovitz. Yeah. So we have Mrs. Potts cooking people into pies. (laughs) You know what I love is, like, you're so scandalized by this, and I bet, like, there's probably, you know, if you go a few years older than us... Like a generation of people who'd be like, oh yeah, Angela Lansbury, you know, from Sweeney Todd. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, this musical was a huge musical. Yeah, and, like, part of the reason why that's kind of the more well known version, uh, especially with these plot changes, is it was televised in 1982. Okay. And then there was a Broadway revival of the show in 2005. Yeah, that makes sense. So, two years before Burton did his film, hence why. I mean, Burton does weird things, anyways, but. Probably why he did, like, a musical version and did that particular plot version Mm. and stuff like that. But anyways, in all of these iterations, Sweeney Todd has always been a horror story. Mm -hmm. Um, We get these occasional labels as thriller, but, like, we've kind of talked in, like, at least the very early episodes, in, like, the Victorian era, horror wasn't really a word yet. Like, you had gothic fiction. Yeah. But thriller was often just a word used synonymously between, like, what we currently know as thrillers and what would eventually become horror. Yes. But it is interesting to think about how, you know, we had The Penny Dreadful published in, like, the mid-1800s. We had a stage version in 1865. And then the next adaptations are with film, with 1926, a 1928 silent film version, and now this 1936 film, which we are watching today. Mm Mm-hmm. So the the 1936 film version, like, until the Soundheim musical, this was kind of the definitive Sweeney Todd. Mm -hmm. And then once that musical came out, like, this got kind of totally forgotten. And I feel like a big part of that is, you know, with the Penny Dreadful, with the stage plays, with this film version, Sweeney Todd was a British phenomenon. You know, it was -hmm. was a, a homegrown sort of British story told in very British mediums by very British people, and the musical that was so big was a Broadway musical. Mm -hmm. So I think part of the reason why it tended to overshadow everything that came before is it was really the first time American audiences got a hold of Sweeney Todd, and so it really took root in consciousness that way. This film stars a man named Todd Slaughter. No. Yes. Is that his, like, given name? So... His real name is not Todd Slaughter. It's Norman Carter Slaughter. That's right. So the Slaughter's the same. Yes. Okay. That's right. The part that he changed was the Todd part. The Todd part's not real. (laughs) The Slaughter part on the birth certificate. Why didn't he become a butcher? You know, you figure like maybe his family were butchers or something like that. Oh, maybe. To get that name. Yeah. But anyways, Todd Slaughter 
was born Norman Carter Slaughter in England on March 19, 1885. And he began acting at the age of 20 in 1905, uh, primarily playing conventional leading man roles. You know, he was young, he was handsome, he played heroes. Um, even with a name like that. Even with a name like that. He sort of made his way up the theatrical circles in this way, playing leading men or character roles, uh, before finally taking over his own theater company in South London in 1924. Now, once he was in charge of his own productions, he did something very different to what was going on in theater at the time, which is that he revived these Victorian-style blood-and-thunder melodramas, uh, such as Maria Martin or Sweeney Todd, and then his company performed them in the original Victorian style. So they didn't use sort of contemporary 1920s acting styles or staging styles. They used the over-the-top, melodramatic Victorian styles that would have been seen in, like, music halls and shit. This guy sounds like a giant nerd, <laughs> but I'm happy that with, like, this neat development in his career, he's leaning into the slaughter. So these performances ended up being received very enthusiastically, uh, both by South London locals and by more sophisticated West End theatergoers as well, who were coming to South London to see these performances. Is that kind of a, like a, a class difference between these two? Yeah, West... So, um... West End London Theatre is like the Broadway of London, uh, or like of England in general. So that's sort of like the top of the London theatre scene is West End. And then South London, you know, would be like thinking like off-off Broadway, okay? Off-off yeah. Broadway. Okay, yeah. cool. So in 1925, he changed his stage name to Todd Slaughter but he was still playing lead heroic roles in his plays. Like, they would do Hound of the Baskervilles, and he would play Sherlock Holmes, or they would do The Three Musketeers, and he would play D'Artagnan. His theater actually got closed down in 1927. Um, they just couldn't pay the rent on the building. And so he ended up taking his company touring around the outlying London area instead. In 1931 he began to play villains. Uh, specifically in that year, he began to play Long John Silver in Treasure Island and Sweeney Todd in Sweeney Todd. And he began to publicize himself as Mr. Murder. Um, <laughs> you don't have to say Mr. Murder. Just call yourself Mr. Slaughter. Um, he... like, like, did Slaughter mean something different back then? <laughs> just, call, just do it. <laughs> He was, um, he, they would do Treasure Island during the day and Sweeney Todd at night, and he would, like, have advertising that's like, he kills over 15 people a day. Um, <laughs> he would go on to perform the role of Sweeney Todd 2,000 times on stage. Wow. So, this is a British film. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take a bit of a sidebar from Mr. Slaughter for a moment to talk about the state of British film at this time. That's a good idea, because we know horror is really not popular. Mm -hmm. The UK has had stricter guidelines banning some American films before the code even came in, and it has, like, its own special, like, 
H for horror rating. Yeah. So, yeah, I was surprised that we were coming to the UK for the next horror film. So, in order to combat the increasing cultural dominance of Hollywood, and in an attempt to stimulate the declining British film industry, in 1935, Parliament passed policy that 20% of all films shown in British theaters had to be of British make. Okay, like the COTC regulations. Right, but for movies. Yeah. This resulted in the rise of what has been called the quota quickie. So these were films that were made as cheaply and as quickly as possible so that cinemas could continue showing large numbers of American films. Um, Who funded them would sort of be different in certain cases. Like, some were actually funded by American distributors, uh, like the American studios, so that, okay, we've got some British films here, we can also distribute our actual product, right? Makes sense. Some were funded by the British cinemas, like the theaters themselves, directly, so that, again, okay, we've got some British films to show, we can keep showing American films that we actually, like, know will make money. Um, Because with it being tied to 20%, the more American films you wanted to be showing, the more of those British films you needed to have, right? Mm -hmm. And it didn't really matter if those films made money or were good, just that they got made. Yeah. So it was into this environment that Todd Slaughter found himself able to enter the British film industry. Uh, He teamed up with a producer-director named George King, who had made his first film in 1930, which uh, was also the film debut of Laurence Olivier, by the way. And by the time of his first collaboration with Slaughter in 1935, he had made over 30 more films in that five-year stretch. Wow. Yeah. Slaughter and King teamed up, and their first film together was 1935's Maria Martin, or Murder in the Red Barn, uh, which was based on the Victorian stage melodrama with Slaughter in the villain role. Their second film was Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street in 1936. So why didn't we watch Maria? It's not a horror movie. It's just like a melodrama. With murder? Yeah. Okay. So the the film version, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, is produced and directed by George King with Slaughter in the lead role. The thing about this film is, while the Quota Quickies had very low budgets, their nature meant that whoever was funding them often didn't really care about the content. Mm. Um, Just so long as the movie got made and didn't run afoul of the censor board. So this led to Slaughter producing these films in the same style as he had produced the plays, as revivals of the old-fashioned Victorian melodramatic performance and staging styles, just as they would have originally been performed at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, one thing that you see people say about Slaughter's films is, like, if the Victorians could have made movies, they would have looked like Todd Slaughter movies, um, because he really approached them with that kind of sensibility. And while Quota Quickies aren't generally, like, critically well-regarded, one thing that they do get credit for is, in Slaughter's case, he was reviving these Victorian melodramas. Other filmmakers would turn to sort of other homegrown British entertainment source material so that, you know, they didn't have to go through the trouble of writing something. And what 
you got from that was um, the Quota Quickies often preserved like music hall and other like old performance styles that no one would have bothered filming otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of their value in a way. Cool. So the success of Slaughter's Sweeney Todd led to a whole slew of Todd Slaughter films from George King Productions uh, over the next few years that were brought to an end only by the outbreak of the Second World War, where these sort of things kind of fell by the wayside. There's more important things to, to call your attention to. Exactly. That's really interesting. Hmm. How were we watching it? Well, um, it's... All of Todd Slaughter's films are in the public domain. Nobody renewing the copyright on these. Um, so we're just watching it on YouTube. It's on our Scream Scene playlist. There's a few different versions of Sweeney Todd the Demon Barber of Fleet Street on YouTube. Unfortunately, the, the best quality version has had the title card removed and replaced with like a really generic title card for some like TV broadcast company that must have bought the rights in the 50s because it says like Hyams TV presents Demon Barber of Fleet Street starring Todd Slaughter in like white Times New Roman on like a gray background and then like after the title card ends it goes back to the regular credits. You can check out the other versions of the movie that are on YouTube and see what the original title card looked like but all of those versions are in like 240p and are like nigh unwatchable. So this is the highest quality version is the one we've put up on the playlist. Okay, cool. If you would like to watch along, you can find that playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Till then, you will hear a brief musical interlude and we will be back after watching the film. See you on the other side, everybody. Every town in every part of the world has one street where things out of the ordinary happen. In the town of Mayfield Falls, that street is Darkside Drive. Darkside Drive is a live horror anthology series about the hidden secrets of disturbing characters. After a successful run of two seasons on CJSW Radio in Calgary, Canada, all 18 episodes are now available online at Apple Podcasts or at www.darksidedrive.com. Creators Don Roth and Justin Guild, along with the talented ensemble of the Calgary Radio Playhouse, invite you to explore a new generation of radio drama as you make your way down the terrifying length of Darkside Drive. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Sweeney Todd. The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Yes. A movie that's about an hour long, if you can believe it or not, Sarah. I could believe it to be longer. Yes. This movie's so, so bad, Ben. Yeah, it's bad. It's not good. And it's also not horror, Sarah. I think it is. Ooh, okay, I don't. Well, that, that can be at least one interesting thing out of this movie. That we can talk about? Okay. Yeah, like it's 
bad. Yes. But I think it's horror. Okay. I, I disagree. Well, how about you tell us what the heck just happened on that screen? Yeah, it, so I was, I was talking to you about this when I was preparing to give this synopsis, but this is a movie that, when you, when you read out a synopsis of this movie, it sounds like a lot happens in this movie. That's not true. <laughs> there, are, there are three scenes in this movie, okay? Someone meets Sweeney Todd by the docks. Sweeney Todd brings them into his shop. Sweeney Todd sends his apprentice out to get a meat pie, kills the dude in the shop, goes down to the basement to loot the body of Cash and talks to Mrs. Lovett. Those are the three scenes in this movie that just sort of repeat over and over. But because the relationships between the characters are very complicated and convoluted, it sounds like there's a lot going on. But okay. So we start in 1936 with a dude who just wants a shave. He's on Fleet Street and he finds a barber shop that's like Sweeney Todd Barbers, which like, that's a tourist trap, my dude. Like, you live in London. Don't I go mean, in there. The barber does keep trying to sell him things. And he's like, no, just a shave. No. Yeah. I don't want to buy anything. No. Yeah, so it's got to be, if that's a tourist trap. So he goes into this barbershop anyways, and the bar, he, like, sees a, like, a Victorian caricature of Sweeney Todd, like, on the wall. And he's like, oh, who's that guy? And the barber tells him the story with, like, great pride, which, like, that's that's weird, right? That's like going into a restaurant and someone being like, uh, let me tell you of the most famous story of food poisoning to ever happen to someone. Like, it's, it's not a good policy. Anyway, so he tells him the story. So Mark Ingerstreet is a sailor on a ship called the Golden Hope. And he's in love with Joanna Oakley, who loves him back. And the ship is owned by her father, Stephen Oakley, who doesn't approve of Mark because Mark is poor. Sweeney Todd, the barber, is also in love with Joanna. He kills his customers and then takes their money, and their bodies are disposed of by Mrs. Lovett, who turns them into meat pies in her shop. Mrs. Lovett is upset that Sweeney doesn't give her what she feels is her fair share of the money that he's stealing, and she's also afraid that if he marries Joanna, who's rich, he'll just sort of leave her behind without paying her her fair share. Joanna doesn't love Sweeney, but her father owes Sweeney a ton of money because Sweeney Todd invested his stolen money into one of Oakley's ships. So Todd says he'll drop the debt if he gets to marry Joanna. Todd has an apprentice, uh, Tobias, who's like a 12-year-old orphan boy who was given to him by the workhouse, Oliver Twist style. Yeah. Please, sir, may I have some more meat pies? <laughs> Mark's ship goes to Africa. And we get and, to see all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a whole thing. But suffice to say, uh, his captain dies while in Africa, and Mark himself gets a lot of pearls from a guy who dies in Africa. Uh, so between the jewelry and the sort of acting captain promotion, he feels confident that he can marry Joanna when he gets back. Sweeney Todd cons Mark into his shop so that he can kill him, but Mrs. Lovett saves Mark's life in order to prevent Todd from marrying Joanna. Having escaped, Mark dresses up as another customer in order to try and get proof of Sweeney's crimes? He doesn't remember anything because he bumped his head on the fall down. Right. And when he visits the second time, he sends Tobias to go to Joanna. 
When this happens, Joanna thinks Mark is in danger, so she dresses up in Tobias's clothes to pretend to be a boy and ask Sweeney for a job so she can get in. Meanwhile, Sweeney has figured out that Mrs. Lovett helped Mark escape, so he kills her. He's also already killed his fence by this point because the fence was trying to blackmail him. So, you know, it's kind of time to, to, to cut his losses and quit while he's ahead. To shave off his losses? To polish them off. Yes. You can't go a scene without the, in this movie without Sweeney Todd telling you that he's going to polish you off. And, like, just to, like, put it out there, that phrase became his catchphrase in that 1847 stage play mm -hmm. that I mentioned. Um, it's not actually from the original books, but because, like, that play came out when the periodical was still being published, it, like, retroactively became his, his thing. The other thing that's weird about that catchphrase is, like, in context it makes sense. Like, he's going to shave you and, and cut your hair and stuff and really polish you off in the sense of, like, make you look good. But I feel like from 2018's perspective, polish you off solely means to kill you. Like, no one says that in any other context anymore. Really? So I'm sitting here, like, like I've never gone to a barber and haven't been like, let me polish you off, sir. Like, so I, I'm sitting here and he's saying it to everyone and I'm like, yeah, he's gonna kill you. What else does that mean? <laughs> when Joanna shows up at the shop, Todd lets her in. Have I seen you before? Yeah, this is, we talked about this before the break, but, like, this movie really really does replicate, like, the conventions of, like, Victorian stage to the extreme of, like, people who should recognize each other not recognizing each other because one of them has a different hairstyle in this scene kind of thing. But, um, they have a fight. Sweeney Todd knocks her out. He stuffs her in the closet and takes all her valuables, and then he sets fire to the place to burn down all the evidence. Meanwhile, Mark learns from Joanna's servant where she's gone and thus goes to rescue her. Reminder, Joanna went to rescue Mark, and now Mark's going to rescue her. Sweeney, meanwhile, has set fire to his own shop and is looking over, like, all the valuables he managed to get out of the place across the street, watching his shop burn while a crowd gathers around. So, good job not being conspicuous, buddy. And as he's going through the valuables, he recognizes a necklace that he gave to Joanna earlier in the film and thus realizes that the girl he beat up and stuffed in the closet was Joanna, so he goes back into the burning shop for her. Mark's there, saving Joanna, so he knocks Sweeney out with one punch and then gets Joanna out, and then the shop burns down around Sweeney, and Sweeney's the victim of his own trapdoor chair when, like, the fire burns through the rope that controls the lever or whatever, and um, that's more or less the end of the movie. We do come back to 1936... And the barber's like, yeah, and that's how Sweeney Todd is totally dope and murdered people all the time. By the way, sir, your neck looks great to, like, have a razor next to or something, threaten, <laughs> threaten. And the guy freaks out and, like, runs out of the shop. The end. So what I know of Victorian periodicals, this film does fit that structure of rambly tangents and not always making sense plots. While so, also being super formulaic and repetitive at the same time. Yeah, in really weird ways. And having, like, way too many characters mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, so I do agree with what you said earlier, like, before the break, about Slaughter's films being, like, 
if Victorian people made films, like what that would look like. I, I would agree with that. That being said, that does not make for a good movie. No. Like every time he kills a dude in his shop, right? It's the same scene. Like Tobias puts some uh, shave soap on them. When he's done with that, Sweeney Todd gives him a penny to go to Mrs. Lovett's shop for a meat pie. And he gives him like a variation on the same line about like, ask for a pie so big you could get to this place in London and back. And the only difference in the dialogue every time is like what place he mentions, right? And that feels like the kind of thing that if like one of those scenes was in one of the like installments of the serial, like per week or per month or whatever, it would be like, ah, I see what you're doing here. But when you see those like multiple times in one hour long movie, it's like, oh, God, just kill me now, <laughs> Sweeney Todd. <laughs> I felt really let down by this movie because I, I had hoped that it would have kind of the same kind of Dracula effect that we saw. And by that, what I mean is, because that doesn't make any sense unless you're in my brain, we know... What are you doing in Sarah's brain? Get out of there! <laughs> we know that Lugosi and Edward Von Sloan played those two characters on stage repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And that translated into such magnetic power in their scenes together in the film Dracula. Mm-hmm. So I had hoped that with Slaughter playing Todd and, like, doing this story repeatedly on stage, some part of that magic would translate here. And all it really did was make Slaughter's performance very fun, but also kind of, like tiring after 60 <laughs> minutes like like he's so over the top that like if he wasn't making coin by shaving people's face this Sweeney Todd would probably have a mustache to twirl as he cackles sure right like he's so hammy he's so over the top I mean you're right he's fun to watch he's the best part of this movie but the rest of the movie around him is terrible and all everyone else in this movie is terrible yeah and everyone's very one-note, cardboard. Even him. Yeah, he's one-note and cardboard, too. It's just he has some, like, energy to his... It's just because he's the villain. And so cardboard villains are, by definition, like, more fun to watch than cardboard heroes or cardboard love interests, right? Totally. But, like, you know, you're talking about the way that, like, Lugosi and Van Sloan really brought something to their characters after having played them so many times... And I feel like the things that work against Slaughter doing that here are twofold. One is there's nothing to Sweeney Todd. Mm. Like, until you get to the 1970s and the Christopher Bond play, he has no motivation. He has no anything. He's just like a dude who kills people. That Like, there's nothing to him at all. Yeah. It's, it's two fears of, like, city life put together, right? It's that, like... That uneasiness when you're at a barber shop, you know, getting a shave with a straight razor of like, oh, like he, like you're you're very vulnerable in that moment, you know, like oh, he could just slip my throat and I'd be dead, and it's you're it, you're combining that with like, you know, when you go to like a cheap eating establishment, you're like, oh, where are they getting the meat in this place, right? Like it's those two things combined. That's the like essence of the Sweeney Todd story. But there's nothing emotional or anything to hang a character on, like. There's not a lot to Dracula and Van Helsing in that movie, but there's there's just enough. And I guess the actors bring that. Mm-hmm. And I think 
that leads me to the second point of why you don't get that in this movie, which is I feel like Slaughter intentionally isn't bringing that. What he's dedicated to is not, you know, the modern ideas of three-dimensional characters and finding the, the soul and the heart of, like, who this person is psychologically. He's dedicated to the Victorian style of, I'm the villain, so I cackle everywhere I go. Ooh, you can come work for me. I'm trustworthy. <laughs> and then, like, the heroes are like, oh, like, I'm the hero. Like, yeah. that kind of thing. I think you're totally right. And it's that kind of, like, one-note melodramatic thing, which is what led gothic horror and Penny Dreadfuls into being very easy to parody and make fun of. Yeah. So it, yeah, I think you're spot on. Right yeah, like there. when Mark punched Sweeney Todd while we were watching the movie, I said, "Unhand her, Dan backslide." Like, and it fit. Yeah, it's perfectly. Exactly. So why do you feel that this isn't horror? <sighs> There's sort of two arguments I could make. One is that like the the directing, like the filmmaking in this movie, is so pedestrian. It's so lifeless. That no moment, there's nothing in this movie that feels thrilling or scary or even exciting mm. at all. Like, nothing really gets the heart pumping here. Anything that could be upsetting often is sort of cut away from and we don't see directly. But the movie doesn't even go to the effort of, like, you know, when you see Hollywood movies that, that don't show you things directly, they at least go to the effort of, like, having, you know... I don't know, the villain loomed towards the camera, underlit with shadows, while the music, you know, swells so that when it fades to the black, we have some suggestion that something bad happened. In this movie, like, things just sort of cut away. Like, there's just no attempt, stylistically or, or cinematically, at making anything scary or interesting or in invoking any kind of emotion at all. So, but that just sort of means it's a failure, right? It doesn't make it genre-wise, not horror. And I would say that given the, what did you call it? The quickie? Quota-quickie. The quota-quickie would explain why the filmmaking feels so pedestrian, especially, I guess, with the exception of the director, George King. Like, a lot of the people involved in the making of this movie, Todd Slaughter being kind of the focal point here, are coming from stage. Yeah. Where you could have, like, not even could... That's just what you do, where you you have to show everything as, as brightly as possible so the person in the back row can see it. Yeah and, yeah, and and you're sort of stuck. The other thing about stage is, to a greater degree with, than film, things happen at the rate that they happen. Like film, you have a control over time and space because of editing, right? Mm -hmm. That this movie doesn't really use. No. Um, but the other thing about this movie is, like, we we've identified various narrative structural things that we associate with horror like that there's a central fear that the goal of the story is to make an audience feel afraid um that horror stories have survivors not heroes this kind of stuff you know this movie has no horror style it has no horrific things happening on screen mark's the hero he's there to rescue the damsel he punches sweeney in the face and gets her out of there and it, to me, this feels a lot more just like melodrama. This just feels like melodrama. You could turn this into a, a, a movie serial, 
really easily and, and, and that sort of thing. You know, just because you have a villain who does dastardly things doesn't make something horror. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that there's enough emphasis on... Like, they don't even really put any sort of emphasis on the fact that, like, his victims are getting turned into meat pies. Like, it's it's there, and you can kind of put the pieces of it together, but I don't think anyone even out and out says it. No, it, I think the strongest kind of underlining of it is in the framing device when you come back, because the guy who has just been, like, told the story smells baking, and the barber's like, yeah, that's the meat st- the pie store next door. Mm-hmm. And he freaks out when he sees pies in the street. Yeah, and like, because all you really get in the movie is like people go through the trap door down into Mrs. Lovett's cellar, and then like they talk about how they have their arrangement, and she drags the bodies away. You know, it's there. If you already know the Sweeney Todd story, you know it's there, and it's not like the movie's saying it isn't there. But no one comes out now. There's, there's no scene where like someone sits down at Mrs. Lovett's and is like, eating a pie, going like, oh, nom, 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 while the audience, like, knows what's really in there. A scene like that is a scene that belongs in a horror movie, right? That kind of dramatic irony. Yeah. That's not really here at all. Like, there's not enough focus put on that stuff. So that's sort of why it didn't come across as horror to me. I think you're making very valid points. I guess the biggest reason for me to kind of still consider this horror is because I think given Slaughter's dedication, really, to the Victorian structure mm-hmm. of filmmaking, <laughs> I guess. I can see why he made the choices he did in terms of, like, the pacing, and I can see with his stage background why he made, or lack of choices regarding, like, lighting mm-hmm. and stuff. And maybe I, I should be saying George King, because that is who is credited as being the director, but I feel like Todd Slaughter probably had a say in things because of who he was and his clout with this character. And you just don't say no to someone whose last name is Slaughter. Sure. But I think the intent behind this film was for it to be a horror film. And you talked about, in the opener, how they were like, yeah, let's just like get this thing out, but with as little trouble with the censors as possible. For sure. And I think that's why we don't really see anything. I think that's, like, the biggest reason why no one says, like, the meat is human. Mm -hmm. It's all circumstantial. I think you make a really good point of, like, like, we've seen films who, films that are able to get around the censors in very clever ways and also still able to bring in the horror element through its lighting. Yeah, through the power of suggestion. Exactly, and that's not here because everyone already knows the story. And so maybe they felt they didn't need to do that. I don't know, but I know that the intent was of horror. That's why I'm like, I think it's a horror movie. Like, we have survivors, like Anna nearly burned up. Poor Tobias, slash the, like, seven other <laughs> orphan boys that he's... That Killed in the last seven weeks. Not suspicious at all. Not suspicious. Here, have, have yet another Oliver Twist stand-in. I feel like there are survivors in this story. It's just not a good horror movie. My, my thing is, like, it was hard for me to feel that horror intention because I wasn't sure if the movie was trying to scare me or freak me out or if the movie was just trying to be like... Oi, this is a good story, I. What a rollicking good time. What a bit of a bit of a um a yawn for the afternoons. Like it's just so kind of <laughs> flat and like 
you know, it felt like a kid's movie in some mm, ways. Mm-hmm. The way, how toothless it was, where it's just sort of like, oh, there's some exciting stuff happening here, but there's nothing really going on. You know, if Disney made a Sweeney Todd movie, it feels like it might be something closer to this <laughs> than, like, the what Tim Burton made, you know? Yeah. Again, that's that's kind of why I'm like, it's just a bad one. I think it's maybe just because, like, with that devotion to the Victorian style, none of these characters feel like they have psychology. None mm. of these characters feel like they have internal lives or emotions. So you talk about the predicament Joanna's been put in, but, like, you never really feel that predicament because the movie's so focused on plot that there's no time for us to see Joanna as a character, like, react to that predicament at all. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a a failing of adapting... Not the stage play that Slato is doing, but the source material into the film. Because periodicals, by their nature, are like, let's just get more shit onto the page to keep you hooked. Here's a plot twist. Here's a plot twist. And all of that plot junk does not need to be in this movie. Yeah. But they keep it in. Well, it's why, you know, ultimately the Stephen Soundheim musical took over the story of Sweeney Todd. Because it gave... Sweeney Todd, motivation and psychology. It gave Mrs. Lovett motivation and psychology. It made all of these people human beings who feel emotions rather than stock character types sort of going through the motion of the plot. Yeah. There is one other thing I want to talk about real quick. It's a bit of a tangent, but then again, it's a bit of a tangent in the movie too. Okay. So I just want to say it so that our listeners know about it. The sequence in Africa is bad. Super bad. And, like, you know, racist, but, like, also just bad? Like, it's just, there's this dude, and he lives in a hut in Africa. I guess it's a trading post. And the drums are happening, and the natives are attacking for reasons. Because the ship is approaching? Because the drums. And so... Oh, and he has a uh, servant who is black, whose name is Snowball. Yeah. And uh, he sends his servant to the ship to be like, hey, bring men to protect me from the natives. And they show up, and, like, there's, like, a good ten-minute scene of just, like, these guys on a set that's pretending to be a jungle shooting, like, black people pretending to be natives. And, like, the trading post guy gets killed and the ship's captain gets killed. So, really, this is a failure of a mission, uh, sailor boys. If I came to you and I said, hey... This Sweeney Todd movie, you know, Sweeney Todd has a 10 minute scene of like sailors in African jungle shooting native Africans who like, they're straight up kind of like Zulu styled with like the, the shields and stuff. Yeah. You'd be, you'd ask what the fuck is that doing there? And you would be right. It's unnecessary and bad and racist. Like, ugh. Yeah. So I just I just wanted to put that out there to be clear. Totally. That this is a thing in this movie and it's bad and it's dumb. And I skipped over it in the synopsis because that's how it's just an explanation for how he gets the pearls. And the captainship. Right. That's it. You don't need it. We don't need it. Okay, so are we ranking this or not? I feel like it could go either way. I do feel like it's horror, but it's also so poorly done. And you made good points for it not being horror, it being more melodrama. And I I think that's also just a fact of, like, Victorian literature, to be blunt. Here's maybe the question we have to answer. 
Yeah. Because I think you were you were kind of snaking towards this point earlier, which is, you know, in the context of Victorian storytelling, there isn't like a massive genre distinction between horror and thriller and melodrama and all that other kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of a continuum. On the other hand, in the context of 1936 filmmaking, there is a distinction, right? So narratively speaking, because we know that Slaughter was dedicated to preserving these Victorian styles, do we say, okay, because this is the Victorian version of horror, we will say it's horror? Or do we say, well, no, because by 1936, this is not horror, and this is a 1936 movie, not an 1836 movie, you know, if such a thing was possible, so it's not horror. Like, whose standards do we judge it by? I think that's what answers the question. So, gothic horror and Victorian horror, Mm -hmm. um, again, to clarify that the word horror didn't quite mean what we understand it to mean in 1936, was about that feeling of dread Mm -hmm. before before something happens. So you can see how that develops into what we understand it to be in 1936, but it was really more about, like, whether or not you were actually in any danger. It was that emotion. Mm -hmm. So feeling like you walk into a library and you see books floating around you and you're like, what the fuck? And then they start flying towards you and you're like, what the fuck? And then like they disappear and turn into butterflies. You're like, okay. And you're fine. Right. That feeling of what the fuck is the feeling that they were going for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the feeling that they were trying to go for with this in terms of the source material mm. of what the fuck? They're, like, killing people and turning them into pies? What the fuck? But this is a very neutered version of that. Yeah. And I think it's because of censorship boards. I think it's a result of people being more accustomed to making stage versions of things, <laughs> trying to make a film version of things. Like, we even talked about it in Dracula, how, like, the stuff that wasn't set in Transylvania, was very just stage play-like mm-hmm. and not spooky. Yeah. Like, it's just a fact of it, of the making of this. Even going by the standards of, like, what horror was in the Victorian era, I don't know if they really succeeded in getting there, actually. They got there with in terms of the stock characters, um, you know, the oh no, she's locked in the closet and it's getting burned up. Oh no, but that's more of a thrill rather than a horror of like a, what are they doing? Yeah, this is the thing, is is the emphasis is narratively are in the wrong place for it to be horror. And I think even if we you see it from the Victorian perspective, I still am not sure if this is really horror so much as it is just kind of melodrama. Yeah. Okay. I, I do think that they were trying to go for horror, but... I, maybe they just didn't succeed. They definitely didn't succeed in a good movie. No, and they didn't see. Su- well, yeah, it... Whether it's a good horror movie or a good movie, it period, they did not succeed in either case. Okay, so do we rank it yes, no? I'll leave it to you, Sarah. Well, if we were to rank it, I was looking at pretty much the bottom of the list. What's on the bottom of the list right now? So it's going to be not at the very, very bottom, but like just above. I was looking at... Second to last, 
Number 65, House of Mystery from 1934. Hmm. I think, you know, compared to House of Mystery, I think this is better. Yeah, like, House of Mystery, it's actually interesting to compare the two, because House of Mystery clearly misunderstood why the tropes of a haunted house mystery works. Yes. Of, like, everyone staying in one clump, seen completely in the framing, moving from room to room to room. It just completely misunderstood the the good qualities of mm-hmm. the old dark house subgenre, I guess. You can kind of say that about this film as well, about not completely understanding, or at the very least achieving, the horrific elements of Victorian horror. Yeah, it, this movie doesn't exploit what makes... Sweeney Todd scary to us. Like, at the end of the day, I'm not interested in his financial deals. Yeah. Right? Like, you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think this is still probably better, though, than House of Mystery. As a horror or as a movie? As a movie? (laughs) Below House of Mystery is Condemned to Live, right? That's Dead Last. Dead Last. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is better than Condemned to Live. You know why it's better than Condemned to Live? Why? I think it's because, and we talked about this in the episode, Condemned to Live was written in this weird faux Victorian style in terms of how people talked. Yeah. And it came off really artificial and and bad. Everyone in this movie talks that way too, but it comes off a bit more genuine because I suspect a lot of the dialogue here is straight from the play. Mm-hmm. So everyone talks in a very stilted, cardboardy manner here, but at least it comes off as authentic, whereas Condemned to Live was like a pastiche. Um, so I think if we're going to rank it, I think it goes above House of Mystery, but no higher. Yeah, that's that's where I was really thinking it would go okay. if we ranked it. What's, what's right above that? Like a Melies movie? Le Chateau Haunt from 1896? Sure. It might have been 97. Not a big, not a big problem. Yeah. Um, alright. Well, do we feel comfortable putting it there? Or do we do we kick it to the to the not applicable <laughs> list? Is this more horror than Legolum? That's the most recent movie we've seen same year as this that we've had to kick over to not actually horror. That's really hard because this movie feels so old. <laughs> this movie feels like one of those early horror films. Right? Like, it feels <laughs> like it's from, like, the 1910-ish. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. It really and does. And if it had come out then, if this had come out next to... Avenging Conscience? Yeah. Would this have been horror to us then? Probably. But, like, it's it's 20 years later. But they're going for that oldie. Feel, yeah, they're trying... It's like watching... This is this movie's the 1930s equivalent of, like, Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof. <laughs> right? Where, like, they're intentionally trying to copy, like, an old style that nobody's into anymore. Yeah. I'm kind of with you that I could go either way. I do feel like it's more... I, I, I do lean more towards it's horror, we should rank it, than not. Okay. But I do see your valid reasons for not. Well... As long as we're ranking it real, real low, I'm okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. So entering the list at number 65 is Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, 
1936, directed by George King. Colon, a romance. Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not a thing. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will also find links to other films that we might have mentioned. You'll also find an appeals box where you can submit appeals, but also concerns, questions, um, anything of that sort. If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. One of the best ways you can help out with the show is by leaving us a rating or review on one of those platforms. It's one of the ways that helps other people find the show. Uh, or in Meat Space, you can just tell your Meat friends. Space? Meat Space. For a minute, I, I was like, is that like an alternative to Squarespace? No, like, like IRL. You can tell your friends about us. In Pie Space. <laughs> uh, let a friend know about the show. Because uh, the pies are yes, made of human meat. meat. Yes, I got it. Okay. Um, if you know anyone who's into old horror movies or old movies or horror or anything of that kind of Venn diagram, let them know about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for podcast audiences to grow. And uh, the last but not least way that you can help support the show is on our Patreon. If you head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to rewards like bonus audio and monthly horror short stories. And if we hit our first goal of $150 a month, we will start doing extra episodes once a month covering horror-adjacent movies, which maybe this was. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you want to see more Todd Slaughter films covered on the show, you better get us to that goal. Okay, Ben, what are we watching next week? Is it actually going to uh, be good? It's actually going to be horror. Okay. I, I don't know about that first thing, but, uh... but, but actually horror is something I can promise you. Okay. Uh, so, it's time for 1936's Lady Vampire sequel movie from director Lambert Hillier and Universal Studios. It's Dracula's Daughter. It's lesbian vampires. Yes, it's Dracula's Daughter, starring Gloria Holden. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to watch this next week. Yeah, it should be a real treat, so I hope you'll all join us then, creatures of the night. Bye! Bye!